Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. What an amazing thing and what a time to reflect and not just go back to normal as soon as we can, but truly imagine what kind of society we should be and what we can learn from something like this. You're listening to a portion of a conversation Michael John Cusick had with Philip Yancey. On this day, three years ago, Good Friday, 2020, at the beginning of what would later become known as the COVID-19 pandemic, a global crisis that sent shockwaves throughout communities, causing fear, anxiety, suffering, and death to many. But we as Christians serve a Savior who is well acquainted with grief and suffering. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. We still have so much to learn and share with the world about the challenges associated with pain, grief, and suffering. Welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. In this edition, we're going to take some time to remember. Three years ago could feel like an eternity, but I suspect that while you listen to today's conversation between Michael John Cusick and Philip Yancey, those three years will quickly melt away. And for some, it will feel like yesterday. Although Philip Yancey needs no introduction, you should know that he has spent his entire career as a journalist and writer exploring themes of suffering and pain, and asking, where is God when it hurts? As everyone worldwide was somehow affected by COVID-19, we wanted to offer you this look back and hope you'll be encouraged as we move into another Easter weekend. So without any further delay... Here's your host, Michael John Cusick. So, Philip Yancey, welcome back to the program at Restoring the Soul. Thank you very much. It's good to be back with you, Michael. You have been uh, busy with media requests, doing what you always do in times of crisis, and you're, you've become kind of the go-to guy to represent 
the Christian faith in times of suffering. Is that right? Oh, I guess that's partially true, and it's my fault because the very first book I wrote was a book called Where is God When It Hurts? And then over the years, I've written on the same topic, disappointment with God and the question that never goes away. And I've been called to places of crisis, places like uh, Virginia Tech after the shootings there, Newtown, Connecticut, of course, Columbine right in our backyard here, and uh, Japan with the tsunami, Sarajevo. So I have been immersed in pain and suffering for a very long time in my career. To the point which Christianity Today, for which you used to be an editor, uh, they said once, and I'm going to read this quote verbatim because I think it's so good, uh, that you deserve a medal for consistently tackling the one issue that is perhaps the hardest to deal with in all of Christian thinking and to keep dealing with it again and again and again. Uh, What has captivated you as a thinker and journalist and writer about this issue of suffering? First would be my my own questions. I think we all have that question, where is God when it hurts? Why do these bad things happen? If God is good, if God is loving both, then why are there such bad things going on in the world? That's an impediment, a, a barrier to faith for many people, and it was for me. Then, because I wrote about it, I started getting letters. Some of them are are just very ordinary. Uh, One thing I'd like to say about the crisis we're going through right now, Michael, the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. Like most people, I go on the computer every day and I check the charts and I see the, the curve, you know, the statistics, how many, what percentage are America, what percentage are my state, Colorado, things like that. But suffering doesn't doesn't work like a statistical map. It's up close. It's personal. It's individual people who lose, uh, in my own town, lose a 54-year-old father. The entire family has to adapt. Life changes forever for that family. And those are the ones that keep me coming back to the questions because I hear from many of the suffering people, individual suffering people, and it hits one-on-one. It's, it changes life for individuals, for families, for neighborhoods. And people like that going through a, a time when we're all kind of in the same boat need some perspective, need some hope, need some comfort. And I think that's what we're called as Christians to offer. How is the COVID-19 virus affecting you and Janet personally? Well, I'm an introverted writer, and I sit in my basement and, and write, and so my daily routine hasn't changed all that much. We can't go to the gym and work out. Fortunately, we live in Colorado, so it's easy to find places, of open spaces where you can take a nice walk without worrying about social distancing. Of course, restaurants, movies, concerts, those are all gone now, and I find I found... Um, more time to read. I picked up some big books, big fat books that I've had on my shelf for a long time and hesitated to pick up because I knew they would take such a commitment. But what else can we do in the evenings these days? And I think it's a it's a wake up call. You know, it, it reminds our entire culture that we can get along without sports. <laughs> who, who knew? <laughs> uh, and so much of our entertainment celebrity culture looks shallow and thin. We realize you watch Jimmy Fallon at night and he's sitting in his garage with his uh, his two little daughters. You realize these these are just ordinary people. They're real people. They're not these superstars in the tuxedos walking out with thousands of people cheering them. Uh, that's a 
that's something our culture has done. And I think it has leveled us in a way. In a different way, the true heroes today aren't hedge fund managers. They're scrambling just to, <laughs> to survive. The true heroes are, are janitors who are going around wiping doorknobs, wiping banisters, and nurses and healthcare workers who are coming out of retirement in many cases, risking their own lives to care for others. And some of them uh, are cleaning bedpans. They're coming up in close contact with people who are infected. I mean, these are, these are heroic things, and I hope our society remembers that. Our society that pays athletes $20 million a year and teachers $50,000 a year, you know, we, we, need to, we need to learn some lessons from, from what a virus a crisis like this teaches us. Yeah, this this crisis is so different from the ones in the past, uh, especially some of the ones that you've been brought in to respond to with this question of suffering. Uh, many have said that the enemy is invisible, that it's not it's not guns, that it's not uh, a foreign country or a religious system, but that it's this invisible enemy that affects us all right on our soil. And it, it seems like it immediately puts everything in perspective about our vulnerability. That's true. And it's a global enemy as well. So I really resist anyone who's trying to blame this country or some of the conspiracy theories floating around. I don't believe them personally, but I think more important, we need to unite and learn from each other because uh, there are scientists in China, South Korea, Europe that need the we need the cooperation with that global community all facing the same threat it it just reveals how vulnerable we are a little tiny virus 7 8000 miles away has brought the entire world economy to its knees <laughs> almost to a halt uh, what what an amazing thing and what a time to reflect and not just go back to normal as soon as we can but truly imagine what kind of society we should be and what we can learn from something like this. Yeah, that's certainly my hope and prayer, not just for the church, but for our world in general. Um, I forwarded you a couple of emails this morning. I always review the New York Times. And I, I love the fact that you just pointed out that it's not any one faith, but that it's people, human beings in general, that are on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses, the first responders. Mm -hmm. But you've talked and written a lot about contrary to popular opinion that all the negative press that the church gets for hate or judgment, that the church has often been in history and in crisis, the people that are there on the front lines. Um, so one of the articles was how in Ohio, uh, someone reached out in the Amish community and they, they called for a frolic. And I didn't know what a frolic mm -hmm. was. But, a, but an immediate and spontaneous gathering of people to respond to a need. And mm -hmm. I, just, I just thought that was such a wonderful idea. And so they, they created this, uh, this seamstress sewing factory in a barn, and they've been producing like 400 masks a day that they're sending off. And an Episcopal priest in uh, Brooklyn who brought together people distributing uh, pizzas to the frontline workers in a way that was more systematic and less haphazard. So talk about um, whether in the present or the past ways that you've seen the church step up. I'll start with past because in many ways, the church's response to suffering 
was one of the main reasons it, it got off the ground. It started, of course, here we are talking in, in Holy Week, and, and the church started after the sad event of Good Friday and then the happy event of Easter Sunday. And then after Pentecost, it really took off and became an, a multinational faith. For a long time in the Roman Empire, however, Christians were viewed as a tiny little sect of Judaism. Most of them were Jews, almost all of them at first. And it, they, they began to be persecuted. Nero blamed them for uh, some of the fires in Rome and started crucifying Christians. Three centuries later, however, they became the official religion of the Roman Empire, a majority religion. And historians look back on that and try to figure out what happened. One of the best explanations I found is in Rodney Stark's books, Triumph of Christianity and the Rise of Christianity. And then another book that I read recently called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Both of them describe what happened when plagues, smallpox in some cases, bubonic plagues and others, plagues would go through Roman towns and villages. And the pagans would all run away, including the priests. They'd run away, go to higher ground, trying to get away from the infection. Christians stayed behind and would nurse not only their families, and but also their neighbors, their pagan neighbors. And after a while, people would come back and realize this and, and have more respect for the Christians. The same Christians would adopt babies that were unwanted. In those days, the Roman form of birth control, they'd let the babies be born and then just leave it out by the side of the road for weather or wild animals to, to kill it. And the Christians said, that's not right. So they would start adopting them. That moral ethic, that respect for human life, and that self-sacrificing love gradually attracted people. So they said, I, I want to be like one of those people rather than like <laughs> rather than the way I've been and was really one of the reasons for the for the growth of the church. Throughout history, the church has given a mixed message. Sometimes it piles judgment, and, and you see that even today. You know, the end of the world, and it's because this happened, or because that happened, or because uh, the Congress passed this law, you know, and that's not helpful, I, I, I believe. And that was true all through history. When bubonic plague hit Europe, about a third of Europe died. And there were prophets going through the streets yelling, God is judging us, God is judging us. Well, turns out what Europe really needed was a supply of rat poison. And <laughs> I don't think it's helpful for the, for the church to speak for God, let God speak for God, drawing conclusions that this is a judgment for this reason or another. It's clear what we're supposed to, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to react. And that's spelled out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Beautiful phrases. Paul talks about the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And he says, the comfort that you have received from the God of all comfort, you are to go and spread abroad to people who need it. And that's, that's our clear charge. That's our mission that Jesus gave. Jesus was the great example. When he, he met with all sorts of suffering people, he met with uh, people who were blind, who were paralyzed, who uh, had leprosy, and never once did he give a word of judgment. The disciples and Pharisees kept trying to goad him into doing that. Why? Why did this man suffer? Why? Why did that person get knocked over by a tower that fell down? What did they do wrong? And Jesus would just blow off that question, and and say, 
that's that's none of your understanding. You can't possibly comprehend that. And and if you think you have it figured out, you're wrong. The real issue is if it happens to you, are you ready? <laughs> are you prepared? Are you living your life in view of the reality that we really don't have anything more that we can count on in the moment in front of us? Live your life in that way. That was a lesson that we can come take away from suffering. But at the same time, he always offered comfort and healing and hope. So when people say God is involved in causing suffering, I have to say, well, that's funny because Jesus, God on earth, spent his entire life healing people from it. <laughs> you know, I'm convinced God is on the side of the one suffering and God is uh, as upset about some of the things that happen on this planet and about some of the pain on this planet as we are. I, I stood before the parents and the first responders in Newtown, Connecticut, after the tragedy there, saying, you grieve, God grieves more. You're upset, God is more upset. And I truly believe that. Well, and you already mentioned this, but today is Good Friday of 2020. And in addition to everything you've said, it's not just that he is displeased and hates the suffering. It's not just that he's on the side of the sufferer and grieves more than the griever, but that he chose suffering himself. And that this this God uh, got on a cross. And as Dr. Bruce Shelley from Denver Seminary said years ago, that, that Christianity is the only religion in the world whose central focus is the humiliation and suffering of its God. Mm. You're absolutely right. And that's the the pattern that we have, the pattern that Jesus laid out for us. What happened on 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago on, on the Friday, was the worst thing that could happen in history, the execution of God's own son. God sent a messenger, sent his, his own self to earth to demonstrate love and compassion and what he is really like and, and what we should be like. And instead, this perfect man was executed. Yet that's a day we now call Good Friday, not Tragic Friday, Dark Friday, Sad Friday, Good Friday, because of what happened next. Because for one thing, God can take the worst thing that can happen and rest out of it something good. There are forces of evil going on. And I imagine on that Friday night, the forces of evil were throwing a party. Hey, we got him. We, we killed the Son of God. Oh, whoa, what are you going to do now? Well, they found out soon on Easter Sunday. And that act of crucifixion, which was the worst that a sophisticated religion and a sophisticated legal system, the Roman Empire, could do, was turned into the salvation of the world and the first step in, in abolishing death. I love the chapter Romans 8, where Paul kind of pulls all this together and he talks about our groaning planet. Boy, if we have ever had a groaning planet, it's right now. And then he says that uh, we're not alone, that the, the Spirit himself actually groans with us as we are going through difficult times. And then that verse that's often misused in Romans 8.28, he doesn't say only good things will happen to you. He says that God can work good out of whatever happens to you. And in the same chapter, he, taught, he refers to some of the parts of his biography that were difficult shipwreck and torture and beatings and prison and snake bite. He doesn't mention all of them, but that, that was all part. And he looks back and he says, in all of these things, 
in all of these things, God worked for my good. And then he goes into this kind of doxology. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Time and space and even death and the past, the future. You know, he goes through this incredible list. That is the template that we have from this Holy Week that, yes, bad things happen. Christianity is a, it's an honest religion. It doesn't promise more than it can deliver. <laughs> it promises that there will be hard times here on earth. But we have hope that, as I sometimes like to say, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense from reverse. We have hope that God will restore this groaning planet, restore our battered bodies in the same way he did for his son when Jesus was on earth. Oh, that is that is so powerful. And I think that's a timely word, not just for the pandemic, but for Easter weekend. We could stop right there. That was so clear and good. But I have one final question. In the Christian church, uh, and particularly in the evangelical church, there has been uh, a reaction of people going to online services and not being able to come to physical buildings. And there's a lot of sense of we're not really sure what to do, especially in light of quarantine. So what words, you've been around for a long time, and you, you grew up in a fundamentalist church when you were very young, and you've been around a wide spectrum, but what words would you have for the church today in terms of how to contribute and bring the kingdom of God and this reality that you just described? Canadians have come up with a a phrase I love. They said, we're not going to be fear mongers. We're going to be care mongers. (laughs) We're we're (laughs) going to find ways to care that spread kind of like a virus, but in a, in a good sense. And in the articles there, they spell out ways of going together in choirs in front of nursing homes where, you know, it's dangerous to go in. You can't really go in. But to let people know you're not alone, finding ways to bring groceries to your elderly neighbors. Um, and you know, we've seen so many beautiful examples, like the Amish people. That's a perfect example, uh, saying, here's one thing we can do. We know how to sew. <laughs> and if they need masks, if they need Head coverings, we can come up with that. The church does its best on ways of serving. When Jesus met with his disciples his last night, he told them, I've I've got a new commandment for you. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And I want you to go out and serve. And to underscore that point, he took up a, a towel and a basin and washed their feet. And they protested wait a minute, you're the master. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be teaching us or something. But he said, no, this this is the most important thing, to serve those around you, to show that love in a very visible, demonstrable way. And I think, I think if we do look for those very practical ways of being generous, even something like if somebody cleans your house or works in your yard and you normally pay them every once a month or once a week or something like that. Tell them, you don't need to come this month. I know times are tough. And here, I'm actually going to pay you twice your normal salary for not showing up. <laughs> something, you know, something like that. And then just to try to be a supportive of the true heroes, the first responders. The uh, Here in, in Denver, there's this thing going on every night at 8 o'clock in downtown Denver. People howl. <laughs> I don't know why they chose that. But they all stand on their balconies and howl support for the healthcare workers in 
Italy and Spain, you see these people on the balconies giving each other concerts. And when we're in a global crisis like that, we need to pull together. We need to find ways to encourage each other to just affirm we won't be defeated. You know, Michael, I was reading uh, a history of of uh, England during World War II, and 60% of the elderly Britons who who lived through that era in London look back on the days of the Blitz as their favorite time of life. 3,000 people were being wounded or killed a day, like a World Trade Center every day for several weeks in the height of the bombings. And yet what they remembered was going down into the those dark subway stops uh, underground, hearing the bombs overhead, but singing patriotic songs, pulling together, sleeping on the floor, being visited by royalty. They were pulling together. They were united against a common foe. And I also read that psychiatric hospitals were geared up. They thought there may be as many as 4 million Britons who would need uh, treatment for traumatic stress. Instead, the admissions into psychiatric hospitals actually went down <laughs> during the days of the bombing campaign. So we we can have health in the midst of plague. And, and in fact, the, the very community that the church represents and can offer and is now trying to find a way to do virtually, that community can be a bulwark against the fear and the anxiety and the depression that often comes in a, in a time like this. So we have strength, we have comfort to offer it. We should do so not without fear, not without shyness, but we have a strong message to offer. And in a time like this, people think about things they don't normally think about. They think about death. They think about the vulnerability of life. And the church has answers to those for sure. Philip Yancey, thank you so much uh, for this conversation, but also thank you for spending decades writing and studying and thinking about this issue that, as you say, as one of your book titles, The Question That Never Goes Away. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing, Michael. You were going virtual long before it became cool. but <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, a book is the same thing. I write my books in isolation and then maybe somebody in, in another country picks it up one day. And I'm sure that's true of this podcast as well. There are people in other countries that you'll never hear from who are listening right now. I hope so. Well, thank you. And uh, two days from now, happy Easter. Absolutely. We're going to find some way to enjoy it. Uh, I don't know exactly what yet, but we'll watch a couple of inspiring church services in the morning. That's for sure. Good. We're going to try to do the same. Well, bless you. Thank you, Michael. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.